Amen. The preaching of God's Word is found in Exodus 34 as we return to our series on this, the Lord's self-proclamation. This, of course, as you're well familiar with now, comes from the previous chapter when it is that Moses said to God, show me thy glory. And God said, no man can see my glory and live. And yet what he would do is what he is here doing as he proclaims his goodness before Moses. So his glory, as it were, passes by as Moses is hid in the cleft of the rock. And then the Lord removes that barrier and Moses is able to look upon, as it is called, the back parts of the Lord as the name of the Lord is proclaimed. And we'll read that for context there, verses 5 through 8, Exodus 34, 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Well, we come now to these few words before us in verse 7 where the Lord pronounces it is that He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. This, of course, as we noted, is in the midst of the Lord proclaiming His goodness. We've considered different aspects of that from His essential glory. He is the Eternal One Almighty unto that which is most related to our perception of His goodness and His mercy and grace, His long-suffering, that He endures our many weaknesses and all the more astounding our sins. And however we sin... He is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin as we look to Him. Well, here we come to this very sobering statement where it is that God says He will by no means clear the guilty. It is perhaps a wonder to us or a confusion perhaps better stated, how is this to fit in with the Lord's proclamation? There is a way in which this righteous testimony so fits in and of itself because justice is good. When it is that one suffers injustice, it is then a great help that justice is served. There are some stories at work in the world right now where there are scandals that have erupted and the victims of those scandals on their lips express this very sentiment. They acknowledge that this will never restore what has been lost. It will never bring back all that has been taken from them. But it is their desire to see justice served. Latent in the heart of God's image bearers is an understanding that when they're wronged, it is right in society for justice to be served. This by no means in any way lessens the need for personal pardon, but in society... 
it is in the New Testament stated, as well as in the Old, that the civil government bears the sword. They are to execute justice, which is a mercy to society. And when it is that such crime and uh, sins go unpunished, society suffers. Well, we see that. But where it is we struggle is that our crimes and our sins demand justice. It's one thing when one has offended us, when one has injured us or stolen from us, or as difficult as it is to consider even uh, harmed us body, mind, emotion, or even injured a child of ours, we can understand then the propriety of justice, but that I should have to answer to justice seems perhaps too much. This is perhaps why the Lord includes that here, because He has been very clear in the testimony of His grace and mercy. This is by no means um, uh, eclipsing that. What's happening, rather, is the Lord is addressing the corrupt assumptions of man. Man hears of grace, and then through his warped and twisted mind, begins to presume that this means I have no need, really, of fleeing to Christ, casting myself upon Him, and you hear it in the godless objections. Why would God have to have someone die on the cross? If He's so gracious, why doesn't He simply forgive sin? And these kinds of things in our godless age actually intrude upon our own minds. And we start to entertain the thought, yeah, well, why is it that God would have such things. One fundamental reason that this is a difficulty for us is because we have done little to consider the beauty of righteousness. And here the Lord is reminding us that this is among His perfections. He is not only, as some would have it uh, noted in the Old Testament, the righteous judge, but as we saw from the lips of Jesus the Savior, He is the righteous judge. God will judge all men, as Paul says, and think of the words he uses, according to my gospel. And so the proclamation of Christ reminds us that this is a day of salvation before the judgment. Well, The Lord asserts His righteousness in these words. He will by no means clear the guilty. Those, he means, who are guilty and unpardoned those who are not justified by His grace. He will not ignore their record. And so he's already stated, in fact, it would be in one breath, as it were, that it is He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty. So forgiveness of sins is clear. Every type of sin, the perverted corruption of our hearts, the transgressing of His law, the purpose missing and delighting in missing the mark, sins of omission where we fail to give God what is due unto His name, and sins of commission where we do what He has forbidden. God is a God who magnifies His grace, as His Word says, over all His name. And what a beautiful testimony that is throughout the Scriptures showing itself most clearly upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, He will have it known that it is only that way and no other that forgiveness is had. And so when men start to become bold and 
they get their vibrato going and they're quite puffed up and they think, well, I'll be okay. I don't really need the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all, I'm really not that bad. God inserts this to sober that He will by no means clear the guilty. He will not wipe the slate of those who remain embedded in their rebellion. And then the phrase, the words, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Doubtlessly, this is a passage that raises questions in our mind. We find it as well in Exodus 20 in the second commandment when the Lord says, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, and so on. It's a common question. How is this just? How is it that God is righteous to look upon a man who has sinned and say, I'm going to extend the punishment to the third and fourth generation? Well, there are a few things that we need to remember. God is very clear in His Word. He inflicts no judgment upon the innocent or undeserving. And though we could have far more time to make this point. You can see this quite simply by going to the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18. This not being the focus of our time together, we hope nonetheless that this will at least alleviate some of that initial tension due to our ignorance. Notice in verse 14, Ezekiel 18 verse 14, speaking of a wicked man, he says, Now lo, if he, that is the wicked man, beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done and considereth and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry and hath covered the naked with a garment that hath taken off his hand from the poor, and that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. And this chapter has several expressions along the same lines. The point is, it's not that he's inflicting a judgment upon one unworthy of the judgment, but rather it is that those who sin are often those who breed sinful children. And it is just for the Lord to allow that to continue. We remember that it's not that we enter into the world blank slates and that we're free of sin. David himself said that though a covenant child, that he was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And so the for whatever reason, long-asked question, is man a sinner because he sins or does he sin because he's a sinner? The Scripture has a simple answer to that. Since Adam, all men sin because they're sinners. They are corrupt. And so never has there been and never will there be any charge against God's justice. But more to the point of the passage, when it is that God leaves sinful children in sinful homes to learn and solidify sinful practices and then brings about both temporal and everlasting judgments, it is a testimony of His righteousness. We'll pass on from this in just a moment, but this is one reason, brethren, we ought to be mindful that our 
actions, however private we think they are, are never isolated. Our actions in our homes and our marriages and our friendships and so on may be the very thing the Lord has ordered to harden others. And indeed, some here, as with me, can shudder to think of the sins committed in youth that brought others into sin who have not repented and are left in that sin, it seems, unto their damnation. What a sobering thought it is that our own sins can be the snare of others. It's a grave testimony about the consequences of sin. It should also be noted that the Lord's mercy outmeasures His inflicting of judgment because in verse 7 it was keeping mercy for thousands, which we remembered is an expression used elsewhere explicitly to refer to generations. And here it is but the third and fourth generation. But what is the fundamental point of this portion? It's that God will most certainly visit the guilty sinner with judgment. It is undeniable. It is irrefutable. However much men wish to deafen their ears and fill their lives with causes of smiles and say, really, it's not bad as the Bible says. It's the Lord, remember, who's saying this. Not Moses, not Paul, not a Puritan, but rather the Lord. He will by no means Clear the guilty. And just think, does not the record of the Bible show this? The world that preceded Noah's flood was a world that is no more. It has been utterly overthrown. We have physical, tangible signs of this. You can look in our own land at things like the catastrophic reality of uh, the Grand Canyon and the massive rush of water that would have poured through that the tectonic shifts and so on that are evidences of an upheaval in the world confirming the flood. And that testimony is a testimony of real judgment. You think of this for a moment. Of the hundreds, thousands that lived at Noah's day, a handful of people were preserved by grace. The flood is a massive testimony of God's righteous judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, two city names that cannot be heard without understanding judgment. And yet, brethren, remember this, whatever the clearly damnable, uh, heinous sins were that were committed, the prophet identifies that those outworkings of sin were because of the indulgent life of luxury, satisfying their personal lusts that led to the outbreak of all manner of lusts. Sodom and Gomorrah, testimony. The promised land is a testimony of judgment as much as mercy. Because remember, the Lord said to His people, the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. And then finally, it is full. And there is the uh, tearing down of those nations. The warnings of the Bible show this as we read in Matthew 25. And all of this is because of what the Lord says. It is not accidental to God. It is essential to God that He is righteous. He is righteous. Just as He is that He is, He's able to say, I am that I am. I am eternal. He is righteous. Just as He is good, He's righteous. Just as He's holy, He's righteous. 
And so, brethren, in light of this, we wish to consider three things. Firstly, the great guilt of sin, briefly. Secondly, the great presumption of sinners. And lastly, the great justice of God. All of this in context, remember, is to remind us of the beauty of His goodness and grace and to preserve us from the fatal error of presuming upon that grace without actually taking up what is offered us in Christ. So God would, as it were, say, look at the beauties of My grace and do not mistake it for something it's not. In an effort, as it were, to shepherd us to the enjoyment of the riches of His grace. Well, firstly then, the great guilt of sin. Sin is a word, of course, frequent in the Bible in a variety of forms. We've had three different synonymous expressions already. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. We see again the word iniquity, a word which primarily highlights the inward perversion and corruption of one's nature. When we think about sin, we realize that sin is the lawless behavior of a moral agent. So a rock can't sin. A cloud doesn't sin. But an angel can sin, and many of them did when the demons revolted. And mankind can and does sin. These moral creatures are capable of sin. But what is it in particular? Let's be clear. Sin is not your conscience or feeling. Sin is the objective violation of the law of God. It's not the neglect of cultural norms, though there may be something there depending on what those norms are. It is fundamentally the violating of God's revealed will. So notice, for instance, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, some of you may have this memorized, "...whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law." For sin is the transgression of the law. Isn't that striking that some would say, well, where's that verse found? What book of the Old Testament is that in? And yet this is in 1 John, testifying so clearly of the necessity of us understanding the law. If we're going to know what is right and wrong, we must necessarily know what the law is. And when Christ summarized the law, He didn't say that means what I'm summarizing no longer is relevant. He was simply giving the shorthand and the clear and pristine essence of the law which calls us to love what is good and hate what is evil. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. The summary of the first and the second tables of the law. Well, sin is the violation of God's revelation of what's required. When it is that one does not do what God says we should, They've sinned. When it is that one does what God says we shouldn't do, we've sinned. Whether it's a sin of commission, doing what we shouldn't, or whether it's a sin of omission, not doing what we should, this is to neglect God's righteous reign. Remember this. It is God fundamentally we're sinning against, but His communication of His will to us is in that regard referred to as His law. Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is then necessarily, since it is God's law, it is the wicked rejection of what is good. 
This is something we need to drill into our minds quite clearly. Every sin is a testimony of despising what's good. It's, moreover, a testimony that one loves what is bad. There is an objectivity to that. The world doesn't want it. The world wants everything muted and put into grays. Oh, that person's too black and white in my mind. You know, I I like to live in the margins. Surely there are things, as we talked briefly about on this past Lord's Day, matters that are indifferent. And yet, even to approach those matters of indifference, we still have to approach them rightly. There's not this neutral way of living in the Lord's way. Why? Because God is not neutral. He is perfectly and fully committed to what is good. And you and I are made in His image. We're moral agents, among many other things, of course. Well, notice Romans 7, a helpful testimony in verses 12 and 13 about this idea of sin. Paul's writing and he says, oh, that our brothers and sisters would better understand this very statement. When he was convicted by the law because of his sin, He doesn't say, therefore, the law is bad. Let's throw the law away. Verse 12 of Romans 7, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, just, and good. God's law only commands what is good. It only forbids what is bad. There's no exception to that. Everything the Lord commands is good. And it's good for us. It doesn't mean in a fallen world that it's easy. Nor does it mean that obeying it will not bring about difficult consequences. But it is objectively good. And to compromise or to outrightly neglect and rebel against it is to betray a wicked and twisted heart. This is what sin is. This then brings about the guilt of sin. Among other consequences of sin, a significant one is personal guilt. Brethren, this word guilt is one that people have softened so much as they talk about feeling guilty about things that really are questionable at best, and yet not feeling guilty about the biggest things. But let's get one thing clear. Guilt is not about your feeling. It's just something our culture needs to reckon with and we need to reckon with as well. It's right when we have sinned to have feelings accordant with guilt, less guilty feelings, but guilt is an objective testimony of God. Whether one feels guilty or feels blissful, whether one is in tremors of great conviction or they're front and center in a parade celebrating vice and feel nothing but joy, if there is sin, there is guilt whatever one feels. Now, it would be better if our consciences and our emotions were in accordance with that testimony of guilt. We should say as an aside, this can also be something for the Christian to realize that your feelings of guilt need to be assessed in the light of God's law. Sometimes a Christian and others even can feel guilty when there is no guilt. And so, brethren, we look now just briefly at this Notice in Romans 3 and verse 19, Paul makes this very point before we pass on to the great presumption of sinners. In Romans 3 and verse 19, 
Paul is testifying of this as he's raising the issue of justification and pardon. And so he says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Striking that one reason, not the only reason, but one reason that God so clearly articulated as law after the fall as well, was so that there would be none, uh, con- no right conclusion but that I am guilty. The word here translated guilty is literally a word that would translate as under judgment. And that's really the notion. The idea of guilt brings one under judgment. Now whose law is violated? It's God's law. Whose judgment are they under? God's judgment. The world may not judge them. The world may in fact protect them and celebrate them and mark days on the calendar to remember them and have parades for them and holidays named after them and so on. But under God's judgment, they are. This is the great guilt of sin. Sin brings us under the just judgment of God who is most holy. Well, then secondly, the great presumption of sinners. It would seem as noted that one reason that the Lord would include this here is because He's been so full in emphasizing His mercy and grace that it would naturally be the work of an unconverted heart to say, see, I'm okay. And this only shows the presumption of sinners. Several ways we can look at the presumption that sinners make, and you'll, in your own mind, make connections to things perhaps that you've thought on occasion and certainly things that the world has said. One such presumption is, really, the Lord is not so holy as you all make Him out to be. The Lord is not that earnest about His glory. The God I know is a merciful God. Isn't that how we sometimes hear it? You know, God's merciful. What are you making Him out to be so just and righteous and holy? Well, remember, this is God's self-disclosure. He's proclaiming, He is good and gracious, merciful and forgiving, but it's not a forgiving that discredits His justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. We read earlier from Psalm 50. If you turn there again, you can see one example of this form of presumption when it is that we read, for instance, in verse 20, Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. This is obviously speaking about the sinner. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes." Understand the force of this word because this is really part of the essence of our culture's presumption. If God's so holy, why are so many flagrant sins permitted and multiplied in our age? Really, that's just the imagination of a stilted and stuck-up former generation. They had misunderstandings that were severe and austere and they had all of these misgivings about fun and levity and happiness and 
you know, let's lighten up, you know, that world was stodgy, dank, stagnant. We're vital and lively and we can celebrate and they didn't know anything about that. Not only does it paint former generations wrongly, it discloses and reveals this very point that our generation is marked by the thought well, if God's so holy as you claim He is, and even as the Bible claims He is, why is it that the greater mass of our generation is able just to go headstrong into all of what you call sin, and they have happiness and happy families and happy lives and everything's going well? And we answer with God's Word. He has kept silence while you've done it, and you have thought that He's like you are. This is what Paul says in Romans you don't realize this. His goodness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the right use of His goodness. That's the right use of His long-suffering. That's the right use of His not opening up the pit of hell and swallowing you up at this point. You need to realize He is exercising long-suffering mercy He's not like you are. If you live out your days and you don't repent and don't trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand these words. It is God who says, I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. The majority of the world today do not believe that verse. Dare I say that the majority of those who had professed themselves Christians do not believe this verse either. God is a righteous judge. And though we can mistake it by our sinful ways now, there will be no mistaking it on the last day. Another presumption is that the Lord's grace, certainly related to this, permits sin. That when the Lord is gracious, that means He's actually permitting sin. And of course, we can see that analogous in our lives when you know, a teacher or uh, a policeman or a parent, whoever might have authority to execute some form of discipline or arrest or punish, they let it slide. So students are notorious, of course, for knowing where the boundaries are. They test them, whether consciously or not, and they find out what well, the teacher said on his syllabus, this is what the rules are, but we've discovered that that's not really going to be upheld, and so we'll just go on. And we have permission to do opposite of what the rules of the class says. You you think about the speed limit. The speed limit says 65 miles an hour. People are going 75 miles an hour and say, no one's pulling me over. No big deal. It's permission, right? We're guaranteed five miles over. And people turn God into civil regulations. Well, we're guaranteed to have a little bit of a fudgy room in our way forward. God is not treating His law like our society treats the speed limit. You have to go above and beyond significant amount of miles per hour before you're actually causing something to register on the scale. The Lord's grace does not permit sin It magnifies His grace and apart from repentance will only multiply judgment. Notice, for instance, in Jeremiah in chapter 7. Jeremiah in chapter 7. You have this mentality 
reproved in the Lord's word. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 8, he says, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Now, we can be quite certain that they weren't using the word abominations. We're delivered to do these abominations. That's the Lord clarifying. What would have been said is we're delivered to do these things. And God's correcting them, saying, just because you come to the temple and offer up sacrifices in this temple that is called a house of prayer where the priests minister, that does not mean you are delivered from guilt in order to do more sin. The Lord is reproving this presumption that grace permits sin. Well, brethren, can you not see, of course, someone who's unconverted looking at Exodus 34 and saying, He's good. He keeps mercy. He forgives. Don't be so strict about my sins. In fact, you don't even have to call them sins. And isn't this, of course, the front of all false teaching today where there's flagrant sin and when asked about, the response is, God is love. God is a God of love. Don't come at me with this rebuke. Don't come after me with some sort of reproof. Don't tell me that God is not satisfied because the God I know is a God of love. Well, brethren, here is a passage to prepare yourself with. The very God who is magnifying His mercy and making it so clear is actually testifying against that mentality. He is that God who forgives but will by no means clear the guilty. Those who with hardness of heart and presumption of mind persist in their sins, God is saying there's a day of reckoning coming unto you and yours. Lastly, the great justice of God. Brethren, God sees all things. It's astonishing to me how foolish our meager, weak minds are to think if I can do something out of the sight of my parents, out of the sight of my spouse, if I can go on stealth mode on the internet and those who would oversee me would never discover what I'm looking at, I'm okay. If I'm out in a different county and I'm speaking in a certain way where I'm sure that others aren't going to be around me, I'll be okay. As long as my parents don't discover, as long as my spouse, as my pastor, as other Christians don't discover, as long as my neighbors or anyone I know doesn't discover, I'll be okay. And there's this huge sigh of relief that comes, as it were, to be out of the observance of others that see us, that would hold us to a standard. And we feel then this temptation or the actuality of going forth into sin thinking, no one sees. I've got a free pass. You know, I've made sure my tracks are covered. I've made sure no one could follow me. I made sure that no one saw 
And yet, what is it that God himself says? He says with such simplicity, be sure your sin will find you out. Why is that? It's because men may be good. They often aren't as good as they think, but they may be very good at escaping and evading the sight of men. They may be gifted, and they may have given themselves to discovering ways to cover up their tracks, whether physically or electronically, relationally. However, they may have deleted all their text messages. They may have erased all of their search history. They may have done all of those things. They may have made so many turns so that no one could have known where they were going. All of that may have been done, but they can't shake the omniscience of God. They can't get out of His sight. They can never go anywhere. They can never go deep enough, far enough. They can never go quiet enough so that God does not see. Notice so many passages come to mind, but one in particular, Psalm 94 and verse 9, as it is that God says, verse 8, Understand ye brutish among the people and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? And all that is coming from verse 7, Yet they say, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. It's a Latin phrase that was once precious to our forefathers, Coram Deo, before God, or in the presence of God, before the face of God. This notion of all I'm doing, I'm ever in His his presence. He sees all. He knows all. And so consciously, though no one else is around, though I were on an island in exile as John the Apostle, yet I will be found faithful because the Lord sees. The Lord watches. See, this is part of dealing with the fact that we are made as those who are made for God. God sees all. He knows all. We can evade a spouse, a parent, a pastor, a policeman, a judge, a juror. We can escape all of these things, but we will never outmove God. But what is, of course, closer to His justice is that He keeps a record book. You know, parents sometimes, they get into this trap where they say, you know, next time you do that, I'm going to punish you for that. And then what happens? Well, it doesn't happen for a couple of weeks, and then it happens again, and they say, next time that happens, I'm going to punish. And eventually the child's get, this is never going to happen. You know, but God is keeping exacting records of every detail. It's a searching thought because it's not just about your words but indeed even about your thoughts. Notice just as an example of what the Lord keeps record of, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And you'll find that the Lord is far more particular than we think that He would be. Verse 36, Matthew 12, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Brethren, if we were only kept by our purposed words, our deliberate words, our intentional words, it would be enough. 
but it's the Lord saying every idle word, the careless word. And how often is it that we say something and someone calls it on, it, on us and, and we say, well, I didn't mean that. It's not really what I was meaning. And we're not talking about, well, definitionally, you know, I was meaning a synonymous thought. We're saying, well, you know, I, I just sort of carelessly spoke that. And we don't realize this, that God is noting that down. Why is that? Is it because he's this sort of, as we would say, vindictive uh, being that he's just cruel and intolerant? No, it's because he is fully committed to purity. And every impurity of the slightest degree in our understanding is infinitely wretched in his sight. It is far short of the glory that he deserves. He deserves a people who are deliberate in their speech. He deserves a people who speak to praise and speak to edify. The new man is being formed in believers. And among what is relevant or evident there is that they let not corrupt communication come out of their mouths, but rather that which is good to the use of edifying. Now, it's not perfect for the Christian. And that burdens the Christian, of course. And it causes the Christian to flee to Christ and say, forgive me, because you're a God who forgives iniquity, sin, and transgression. But it's a blessed truth that the Lord's at work making us a people who more and more intentionally by His grace are a people who even our words are more and more in accordance to the Lord's standard. Idle words are being recorded. Brethren, so much we pass by and to get to perhaps a most searching truth. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 Paul speaks of the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. All of the cover-ups that have been exploded in various generations make us astounded. Watergate, you know, famous among things, of course, in our nation's history. And doubtlessly, there are cover-ups that have been successful. There have been multi-agent cover-ups that have been successful. We don't have any doubt of that. We don't mean by this to uh, cater to those who are ever you know, going after different conspiracy theories. We're simply saying that crime happens, and it happens in high places, and on occasion there are cover-ups that are attempted and take place. But this is no different from private lives. In fact, the public is but the outworking of private things. And how many times have we done the breath of sigh of relief because we've put the bow on the cover-up and no one can find out? It's what mankind thinks as a fallen and foolish thing. But here Paul says the secrets of men will be brought out. And not only so, but judged. Brethren, this leads to the execution of His justice. You thought that I was like you when I was silent. You thought my long-suffering was my stamp of approval. You thought that my lack of punishing you in this life was a testimony that I don't really hold people to that standard. 
And yet God said so well in advance of all these things, I will by no means clear the guilty. And there are plenty of people who go to their graves thinking, I've sinned, I know I've sinned, but my sin's not all that bad. And after all, God's gracious and merciful, I'll be okay. Comes out, doesn't it? You share the gospel, people say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, that's a big round of applause for you. You haven't taken someone's life in such a heinous way, and yet you have no conviction over the idle words, thou fool, for which Christ says, you will enter into hell fire. You understand? Christ is the one who is both warning, and Christ is the one who is recording, and Christ is the one who will judge. Isn't that astonishing for a moment? This is putting Exodus 34-7 into perspective. Christ is the Savior of sinners. Christ has come proclaiming the name of the Lord. He is the name of the Lord. He's the one who comes and says, repent. He's the one who comes and says, be forgiven. He's the one who comes and says, I'll save. And yet He's also going to be the one who comes. And then it is that men will say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb of God which was slain is now come in judgment. Revelation chapter 21, or 20 rather, and there at verse 11, the great white throne and him that sat on it, whose face, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. There's the record. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Perhaps it will not be until that day that men realize God was not mocking. And may it be that none in this room would be found in such agony as will be found on that day. Well, as we close, brethren, these sobering words, remember in context, they're meant for good. They're meant to remind us of how precious the fact that God proclaims His mercy is. Because if He was not merciful, we would only be left with this testimony. The Lord, the Lord God, who will by no means clear the guilty. And someone says, well, that couldn't be what would happen. You know, God wouldn't do that. And yet, I'd like to introduce you to every single fallen angel. Because to none of them does God proclaim mercy. So soon as they fell, they only have the testimony for endless ages. God will by no means clear the guilty. That you and I have heard, even heard, that there is forgiveness with God is a mercy that none of the demons have heard. You and I have heard the testimony that our sins which would swallow us up in that guilt and bring us under the judgment of God, yet there is forgiveness 
And though we say, but my sins are so full, they're so varied, they're so profane, they're so profuse, they're in my thoughts, they're in my desires, they're in my actions, they're in the words that I come, I can't even not speak intentionally. And it betrays the fact that there's sin in me. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Question's been asked before. And the answer is one and the same. I praise God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is indeed the one who brings about this salvation that He forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression because Jesus Christ suffered the justice of God. He, as Isaiah 53 says, was treated as one who would by no means be cleared. Though He Himself was not personally guilty, the guilt of our iniquity was thrust upon Him. And God, in effect, says, here is the perfect marriage of My mercy and My justice. At one and the same time, in Christ, My mercy toward My people in that their sins are not upon them, but upon Him. And yet My justice, I won't clear Him. My sword will execute the fierceness and the fullness of My wrath, and there will be no pardon except this takes place. So that as Paul says, God is both just and the justifier of him which believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ. O brethren, never take God's mercy lightly because for all eternity none will ever take God's justice lightly. Whatever men do in this life, live in light of that day of reckoning to come. We cannot answer for others what they will do, but we must answer for ourselves. What is your hope with God and His mercy? Is it the presuming, self-centered, you know, uh, compromised way? God's going to be merciful. You know, He's not really that strict and so on. God's a God of love. God's a God of mercy. Or is it God is that God who is just? He's not messing around. He's not overshooting. He's not talking up a big talk only to uh, fall out when it comes to the time for execution. I will by no means clear the guilty. Is your hope in the way of hope through the merciful provision of the Savior Jesus Christ? Because if it's not, this Word is to sober you and to make you realize God's not playing, but will indeed execute the fierceness of His justice. And yet, brethren, we close by saying it need not be so for us because He's declared to us His goodness and grace and has held forth to us Jesus Christ who Himself is the Savior of sinners. And as God would plead with us to come to Him, so Christ has come to us and said, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you stand with me for prayer?